Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Today we have with us Jason Brennan, the Flanagan Family Professor of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDon- McDonald? McDonald? McDoug? McDonough. McDonough, sorry. <laughs> McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. Sorry about that. I practiced before and I still got it wrong. Uh, Jason, welcome to Policy McCombs. Thanks for having me here. Uh, let's start with the, the title of, of one of your books. And, and um, So why is it okay to want to be rich? I mean, who doesn't want more money? Uh, the reason I ended up writing that book was I think the typical American is sort of of two minds about these things. We uh, most of us want more money. We don't turn down raises. If we found if we won the lottery, we wouldn't like rip up the ticket. We tend to admire rich people and spend a lot of time looking into their lives. Like people watch the Kardashians or they're interested in like Steve Jobs and so on. Um, and Despite all that, though, we also tend to think that like being rich corrupts us. Rich people are bad people. Uh, that somehow we, we'd be better if we didn't care about money. Um, so, like when you know Gordon Gecko in that old movie from the '80s says "greed is good," everybody claps, and then when they haul that greedy bastard off to jail, they clap even more. Uh, so, I think we have this kind of split personality disorder as like a culture when it comes to thinking about money. So, what the book is meant to do is investigate three basic claims. Like one is, is it okay to want more money? Is it okay to make money? And if you do make money, are you obligated to give it all away? And the answer is going to be yes, yes, and no. Uh, so yeah, uh, the first third of the book is really just about what does wealth actually do for us? Um, and people tend to think it's like crass materialism. All we care about is like trinkets and baubles, as Adam Smith would say. But in fact, when you examine the empirics of wealth, what you find is that as people get richer, they tend to be more open and tolerant. Um, they tend to care about one another more. They tend to be freer and more able to sort of help each other. Their marriages get better. Their kids live better lives. They have a higher chance of leading a life that's authentically theirs rather than being sort of bound by necessity to sort of do whatever it takes to survive. Um, They can read more. And and just, well, money is correlated and explains all these important things that make our lives better. So a good way of thinking about the value of money is that, um, yes, empirically speaking, it does make people happier. And the main reason it does is because if you think of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I'm sure most people have heard of, which is sort of a ranking of all the things we might need with the most urgent stuff at the bottom, things like food and shelter and the most important stuff like self-transcendence at the top. Um, what money does is it pr- gets you the stuff at the bottom and it liberates you to make it more likely that you can pursue the stuff at the top, even if it doesn't guarantee it. So money, money's worth wanting. But then people also think, well, but making money, isn't that a bad thing? And so a lot of what the book does is explain what profit is, where it comes from, how markets work, you know, so people have this sort of prejudice where they think, um, you know, the the distribution of income or wealth or what it is to per- compete in a market is a sort of zero sum game, meaning that when I win, it's coming at somebody else's expense. But the reality is, uh, what markets fundamentally are is competition to cooperate. It's we're all looking to cooperate with other people, and we compete with one another on a small scale to try to be offer the best chance of cooperation with others, and what ends up happening is we are cooperating on a giant scale. Like even the microphone in front of me, which is made by the sure company. Uh, I have, I like, I like their microphones. I have a bunch of these at home. Uh, 
you know, you might think that maybe a five or 600 people went into building this thing um, when you think about the Sure factory. But the reality is it's more like 50 or 60 million people participate in the production of this device. And all this is facilitated through markets and market prices. So um, one of the things I like to teach my students is like, you know, when you think about what it is to make a profit on a market, as long as you don't have, if you're if you're following basic business ethics and you don't have a lot of third party costs or externalities, then when you make a profit, what it means is you took resources, including your own time and effort, that other, that the market valued at a certain level, and you transform them into a, into something valued at a higher level, and you get to keep some of that. And fundamentally, what markets are doing is coordinating people to work together through. The, through market prices, which are themselves a reflection of people's disparate needs, disparate wants, and disparate information, to cooperate on a mass scale. That doesn't mean that all money making is good. Like, for instance, the way that the English department at typical university makes its money is very corrupt and they should feel bad about getting paid. But, um, uh, or the way that, say, uh, Archer Daniels Midland makes its money is very corrupt and they should feel bad about it. But, but fundamentally, when you're making money, you're actually literally making money. You are creating wealth where there wasn't some. You're benefiting yourself and you're benefiting others at the same time. And really, we don't know of a way to, co- to get people to work together on a mass scale uh, and cooperate on a mass scale other than through this kind of market activity that tells people what can be useful to others and how they can be of service. So a lot of it is meant to say, if you really understand the economics of trade, of production, and so on, you realize that making money is not only acceptable, but a noble thing. It's For most people, the job that you have is your biggest contribution to humanity. You're going to do a lot more, you're going to do a lot more good for the world by fixing motorcycles than you are by voting, right? You're probably doing a lot more good for the world by fixing motorcycles than you are by volunteering whatever you volunteer at. And I'm not here to say not to volunteer either, but just like that's your biggest uh, thing. So finally, the last third of the book is about the question of, now that you've made some money, are you obligated to give it all away? And I try to defend kind of a common sense view, which says, yes, charity is a good thing. And if you are going to give to charity, you should try to give to effective charities, not ineffective ones. Um, and, we, and we talk about what that means. Um, but no, you're not sort of in perpetual debt to society in virtue of having made money. You are allowed to spend it on yourself and pursue some luxuries and so on. You don't have to give it all away. And I spent a lot of time re- responding to a philosopher named Peter Singer who argues otherwise. But part of the, without getting into all the details of the argument, part of the issue is that uh, we, we actually have a real dilemma when it comes to thinking about using our money to help others. Because for instance, if I, if I take $50 and I feed a bunch of homeless people right now, well, now they're not hungry. They might be hungry tomorrow, but they're not hungry today. If I take that money and I stick it in an investment, um, some sort of investment portfolio, then I can, with that same amount of money, feed hundreds and hundreds of homeless people in 50 years. So should I invest it or should I give it to a person now? But it's even more complicated than that because when I invest it, I'm also creating the kind of capital gains that make it so that in the future, fewer people need to be fed and they're in a better position to feed themselves. The reason that I'm in a position of asking, should I feed people rather than the position of asking, will someone feed me is not anything special to me. It's because in the past, people didn't only put their money into charity. They put it into production and and development. It allows uh, us to be richer. It allows us to be richer. Uh, and so, you know, take like, you know, Peter Singer was writing his famous article arguing that we should give away almost all of our money, which even he doesn't do. He gives away a lot, but not as much as he thinks he should. Back in the, his paper came out in like 1972. And say, take South Korea. In 1972, South Korea is a 
very poor country. And then Americans and Canadians and British people don't listen to Peter Singer and they buy a bunch of stuff that they don't need from South Korea, like VCRs and cars and video game systems or whatever else. And the result is now South Korea is rich, not poor. They didn't become rich because they got a handout. They became rich because they engaged in productive trade and productive development. So if you actually want to help people, these are all things you have to think about. It's actually, instead of saying like, oh, don't worry, you don't have to give to charity, which I think you should give to some money to charity. Thinking about the optimal level of charity versus investment versus trade versus other stuff, purely from a pro-social point of view, is really quite hard. And our prejudice is to just think, whenever I give money to a charity, I've done something good. And whenever I've bought a good I don't need, I've done something bad. And in fact, it's much more complicated. Many charities suck and they're not worth your dollars. Uh, and many times when you're buying that stuff you don't need, you are enabling people to put themselves in a position of advantage. Yeah, I guess the two things that, that are, are uh, reacting to what you said that is really interesting is that when you ask the, the question, just is it okay to want to be rich? I think there's a lot of value judgment that comes in right away. Mm-hmm. But if is it okay to want to be richer? It's something that I think people will react a little bit better to. Like, well, you know, we're all trying to improve our lives. So the, the er there makes like it's an improvement thing. And that's the, the, the process of progress that we've been engaging for the last 250 years, right? All of us getting richer and richer, which is obviously beneficial. And the mechanism for that you describe, again, is it, something that still the motivation is something that, that uh, there's always a, this sort of valuation of like, well, maybe it's too much. It's not okay. It's okay to get better, more. But maybe too much is not okay. There's some sort of like always this sort of threshold and nobody knows how to draw the line or where the threshold is, right? And, and, but there's always moralizing that go, takes place on, on, on that direction. Like most notably now, we want to tax our billionaires. Well, billions, why do you need billions? And folks don't realize that, you know, Elon Musk is worth, what, $190 billion right now? He doesn't have that in his bank account. It's not like he's buying $190 billion worth of stuff, right? He has this money in productive activities. 99% of it probably sits mm-hmm. in productive activities right now, helping others get richer, helping others benefit. And, and, and take it away from him, it's not going to make the money more productive. It's actually going to reduce that, right? Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really... It, yeah. I, but Jeff Bezos' money is in the form of warehouses yes. that are like holding the stuff you're buying from Amazon. It's not a Scrooge McDuck money pit. It's the Amazon warehouse near you is worth something, and Bezos owns a bunch of that. So when you're saying tax his money, what you're saying is should we liquidate that? Who's going to yes. buy it, by the yes. way? But liquidate the warehouse and give the money to the government so they can spend it on, like I don't know, brown, that's exactly brownings people. Bombing brown skin people. That's what they're going to do with it, frankly. And that's exactly what the government is trying to do right now is to tax unrealized gains of, of rich folks, which mm. means that, yeah, go sell a piece of your company. Go fire some people, perhaps, mm. in order to give it to the government. Stop being productive there, and then we're going to decide where to allocate that, that money, which is I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's not, not only it's crazy, but it's, I think, unique. We've never seen that unless in feudal times where you know, the government come in and say, okay, I'm going to take part of your land here and shut up. <laughs> um, all right, so that, that, let's uh, uh, this notion again of it's okay to be rich. You teach in a business school. Typically, a business student comes in. If you're going to go get an MBA, you're thinking, or even getting a business degree as an undergraduate, you're thinking about improving your lives through business to get yourself richer. That's the motivation of most people. They're not trying to enlighten themselves. If you're going in and getting an accounting, nothing against accounting, but, but that's if, you, if you're doing that, you're most likely doing that for some financial motivation, right? Which is totally, totally fine. Um, and yet there's this big movement and sort of like almost repenting of business schools and the way we talk about profit seeking in business schools that is somehow, well, you know, we need to be careful because you mentioned as long as you're following some basis of business ethics and that sort of uh, caveat that you mentioned became now very big. Now, what it means to follow 
basic business ethics now has like a lot of implications and we have to be think about all the stakeholders that might be affected by our activities and so on. So we see that having an impact on things like, for example, uh, our students not wanting to go into the, the energy industry as much or energy in Texas being primarily uh, oil and gas, right? Well, somehow there's an immoral choice being made there Whereas uh, before it was something like, no, it's a profit activity, we're gonna do it, and, and, and as you pointed out, right, the, the, the individual drilling in West Texas is actually generating probably a lot of value to the world, and we're seeing right now the cost of energy going up, the potential negative consequences of not having abundant, abundant energy. But how do you see that, 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 that tension in business schools right now between this sort of ESG, stakeholder capitalism type of rhetoric, and you know, people's motivations that are primarily still a motivation of making money? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think part of it has to do with the people who choose to specialize in business ethics for various weird historical reasons tend to be quite anti-market, anti-business. Um, they're often people who've never worked in business. Um, and they often come in, a lot of times it's like, uh, I have a prejudice against business. And so because of that, I'm going to like try to specialize in telling business people how bad they are. Um, so the real interesting question is like, why do business people listen? And I have a kind of a general theory of academia, which is that academia is an extremely right-wing place, perhaps the most right-wing institution in the United States filled with extremely left-wing people. And there's a disparity between what we say and what we do, because the primary thing that academia actually does what it actually does is create status differentials. It makes some people higher status and other people lower status. It is actually a zero-sum game. Um, and in fact, like my gain in status comes to the expense of other people. It makes it so that like having a college degree makes you higher status than a trucker. Um, and then a lot of the plum jobs and plum positions out there in the world are held away from you unless you have a bachelor's degree, and especially a bachelor's degree or a master's degree from a prominent fancy school with a fancy name. So that's what we, in fact, do. And then while we're here, we say these little prayers about equality and egalitarianism. But like Harvard is one of the most anti-egalitarian things ever created. And it's kind of like if you think about like the Catholic Church in the year 1100, you know, the, the priests are all saying all this stuff about like helping the poor and making everyone better off while the actual church is engaging in wars and land grabs and is massing as much real estate as it possibly can. So there's almost like it's almost like the, the rhetoric is like a cover up for the behavior. And we feel better about the behavior because we sort of like say a little prayer about what we're doing. So I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is just there's certain intellectual faddishness and, and shareholder or stakeholder theory, there's nothing wrong with it because there can't be anything wrong with it because it's utterly vacuous. And, I, and I'm not even being unfair to them. I know it's vacuous because the high priest of stakeholder theory, Freeman himself, says it's vacuous in his most recent book about it. Um, what does stakeholder theory fundamentally say? It says, when you are making a business decision or any decision, you should consider and weigh all legitimate interests. Well, of course it says that because every moral theory says that, right? And uh, and then you might ask the question, okay, well, what if there's conflict among these legitimate interests? How do we mediate between them? And Freeman's answer in his most recent book, which he co-wrote with like three other people is, well, any answer you give counts as an instance of stakeholder theory. In fact, stakeholder theory is such an open, broad theory that even the things that are offered as comp comp competitors to stakeholder theory, like shareholder theory, are actually just instances of it. That's what he says in his book. Right. So, of course, he's right because the theory doesn't actually say anything. Um, and I think that's a problem because we actually want to know, well, what are the principles of how do you know you're making money the right way? And, and a lot of what stakeholder theory does is sort of ignore that hard question and focus on, well, what do you do with your money once you have it? And even then, I think it's a more complicated issue for the things we we're talking about before. Like, 
I believe that there's a division of labor and not just a division of, of labor in production, but a division of moral labor. Not everyone, like it's really important that some people feed people. It's important that other people give up band-aids. It's important that other people, you know, use knitting as a wellness tool to reduce stress in hospitals. It's important that people you could just name all sorts of charities and activities, but that doesn't mean that everyone has to contribute to all of these things, right? We all contribute in different ways. Different organizations contribute in different ways. So, you know, take like the, the company FedEx. I'm not here to say that FedEx is perfect business ethics, but I, I do like what they say about their business. They go, the fundamental way that we contribute to the world, that we make the world a better place is by facilitating trade among strangers. We make it, we reduce the transaction costs an information cost of trade. We make it so people around the world can interact with and enrich one another and contribute to one another. That's the way that we serve the world. If we give some money to a charity afterwards, if we if we do some stuff to increase sustainability, if we if we throw some money at this educational foundation, that's great. But the fundamentally our ethical performance is our business itself. And frankly, that's what your business has to be able to say about itself if it's a good business. And people, I think in business schools who often worked in business for like a year and then quit, <laughs> like think that that's easy. Like contributing through production is easy. And then the hard stuff is like finding the right charity to donate 5% of your profits to. No, actually running a legitimate business and really making value for other people is incredibly hard. And that's why most people who try to do it fail. It's really difficult to do that. So you teach something, you do something special with your classes at, at, at Georgetown. Uh, tell us about that a little bit, the, the ethics project. Yeah, I, in, in all of my classes now, um, and now actually all of our MBA class, every student in our MBA program is now going to do this as well. We do something called the ethics project. It's meant to be a very generic word. Uh, uh, so here's what I tell students. Think of something good to do and do it. I ask them to form groups of about four, sometimes up to sometimes even seven students, um, and each group is given $1,000 uh, or up to $1,000. They don't have to spend the money to think of an activity that they want to do that would make the world a better place and try to do it. Along the way, they're asked to think of and answer 10 basic questions, such as how did you interpret the imperative to do something good? Did you focus on moral goodness or non-moral goodness? You know, like a, a guitar is good, but it's not morally good. It's a different kind of goodness. Um, what was the opportunity cost of your decision? In other words, what was like the next, next best project you could have done? How did you form your group and allocate labor within the group? Um, what were some obstacles you expected to encounter and how did you plan for them? What obstacles did you in fact encounter and how did you deal with them? Did your project add value to the world, taking into account the cost of your time and effort and any money spent and the value of your outputs, which requires you to commensurate what you did with what it cost you to do it? Um, what did you learn from this activity? What would you lear- do differently? And so on. So they answer all these questions about management, economics, philosophy, and they have to actually go and experience the world firsthand and see what it's like to actually do this stuff, including dealing with red tape, dealing with capricious or unfair uh, people out there in the world, having to actually try to make a profit if they decide to run a business. And the projects range from completely boring and utter, utter failures to really profound stuff. You know, there are people like some students, like the most successful business anyone ever ran. Um, ended up grossing something like $100,000 per year for a few years. You know, it's just like a side project the students were doing, but they made a ton of money and they made like a, you know, about a 33% margin on it too. So the students literally were paying themselves a lot. Uh, we've had charitable activities where one, one student group created this club that ended up spreading to multiple campuses, which is almost like a make-a-wish foundation for um, blue-collar workers at universities. We've had things where students did very simple fixes at our university that would save them something like twenty to $30,000 a year on water costs. 
Um, and then we, we, one of the funny things they discovered was that despite proving to the university that they did this, the university wouldn't spend another thousand dollars to reduce those costs themselves. Uh, and they could talk when they learn about bureaucratic incentives and why they would make dysfunctional choices. Um, we've had people sell T-shirts. We've had people run events. We've had people just do fundraisers for different endeavors. So I think the record right now for fundraising is about twenty-two thousand um, dollars, which is pretty good for a couple undergrads, like you know, working on this part time as a class project. We've also they've got to see firsthand weird stuff happen. Like the first time I ran this, uh, students had this idea for an app on your phone um, that would allow you to trade books with other students on campus. Um, and it was a way of bypassing the bookstore in order to like save money. And the poorest students on campus really could benefit from this because mm-hmm. they often get, don't get financial aid that covers their books. And then the previous uh, bookstore company, so not the one that's currently at Georgetown, but the previous one, heard about this and contacted a bunch of admins and got them to like yell at the students and shut it down, even though, by the way, the admins had no standing to do that and the students could have told them to go to hell and, and gone away with it. But they learned, how is it that this university that is you know, on paper committed to social justice shut down a program that would have saved the poorest students a lot of money on books? Why would that happen? And they can talk about bureaucratic incentives and so on again. So what I like about this project is rather than thinking about doing something good, you have to actually go and do it. And you learn firsthand what it takes to act in the world and how hard it is to make these decisions. And um, we're, we're a Jesuit university, and it's actually a very Jesuit project, I've realized, because it's the, you can think of it as first you deliberate, then you act, and you actually do something, and then you reflect on what it all meant. So did anybody have ever just bought shares on you know, S&P 500 and let it... That's a pretty good use of the money. And um, uh, I don't know, did anybody, some smart-ass student came back and said, well, we just bought some shares in S&P because that's going to be great. Yeah, I would be happy for them to do that. Uh, one, of the, one of the weird things about the project is, which in a way makes it better, is that there's a lot of restrictions on spending because of regulations applying to the university. <laughs> so when I first came up with this, what I wanted to do was walk in on like week three when they formed their groups and hand them an envelope with $1,000 cash and say, you can literally pay yourselves the money and then you will stand up here in, in 12 weeks and tell me why you each paid yourselves 200 bucks. But I can't do that. Um, they can't just take the money and invest it. Um, they can't take the money and gamble it. Uh, and they've even tried. They've actually asked for permission before to do certain kinds of investment. And the university said, we don't have a problem with this personally, but we're just literally not allowed to do this because of the regulations that apply to us. So they're fairly restricted in the use of the money, um, though what ends up happening often is students don't take our money and they, f- they go and raise money on their own to do something um, in order to overcome those restrictions. So we have had students who've done sort of experiments with investment um, to like test a theory about certain kind of investment and so on, but they, they had to get money from outside sources. Um, they didn't get it from us because we just can't give it to them for that purpose. The, the money. Yeah. But in a way, it makes the project better because in the real world, you know, there's always red tape. You can't just start a charity. You can't just start a business. You have to deal with red tape and regulation, and so do they. And that's a good lesson, right? To, you know, if they want to be productive members, they're going to have to deal with this, and those are not necessarily designed for optimality. They are just there because they're there. Yeah, <laughs> and they have their own incentives. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, let's just change gears a little bit, and let's talk about some other topics that you, you've written about uh, recently. So why should we consider alternatives to democracy? Yeah, I wrote a book on this, uh, which... It originally was going to be called Against Politics, and then my editor suggested we change it to Against Democracy because it would sell more books, even though people would read it uh, less sympathetically. And he was right, um, and it was worth it. It was a, the bargain, and I took it, and it worked. Uh, but really, it should be called Against Democratic Triumphalism, which I mean, because people tend to think democracy is good as an end in itself. It's good because of what it expresses about us. Uh, and I want to convince people that democracy has the same kind of value that a microphone has. 
it's an instrument, it's a tool, and it produces, it's to be judged by how well it produces good outcomes where the goodness of the outcome is judged independently of the process. And if we can find a better process, the one that's more effective, we should feel free to use it. And that sometimes means things like, like consider the question of central planning. Like why don't we have a centrally planned economy? Well, because governments are incompetent to engage in central planning. So we don't, you know, sometimes the question, but should we use democracy? People think, oh, democracy versus dictatorship versus oligarchy versus something else. And the answer is like, no, no, should we leave this off the table? It shouldn't even be a political matter at all. Like we don't make it a political matter to decide like whom you're going to marry or what religion you're going to belong to, if any. We just take that off the table. We don't ask whether democracy should decide. We just say, you decide for yourself. Um, but one of the problems we have with democracy is that it incentivizes people to be ignorant, misinformed, and irrational. And a good metaphor for this would be, imagine you're in a class with, say, a thousand students, and the professor comes in in week one and says, everybody, I'm an egalitarian, so this is what we're going to do. Uh, 15 weeks from now, you're going to take a final exam worth 100% of your grade, but rather than each of you getting your individual scores, I'm going to average all of your scores together, and everyone will get exactly the same grade. Now, suppose the students can't get out of this class and they're stuck. What would you expect the average grade to be? probably like an F. And in fact, empirically, when you've tried run, people run these experiments, that's what you get, like it's an F. And the reason is simple is because um, the grades are now a commons, not a market. So if the, if the, the other 999 students together have an average grade of a 30, and I study really, really hard, and I score 100 on the test, that brings the class average up from like a 30 to like a 30.7 or something like that. It's not worth it, so why bother invest the time? So you'd expect students in the class to remain rationally ignorant of the information, um, and that's what we find in democracies. People are very badly informed, and not only are they badly informed, but when they're given information, they reason poorly about it because they don't have much incentive to think carefully, and it's often fun to think uncarefully. Like, it's really fun to just think everyone who votes the other way is evil and stupid and we're really good. Um, it sort of helps me signal my fidelity to my peer group. You know, if I if I just you know, unquestionably say that my group is always right about everything, then that shows other people in my peer group that I'm really loyal to them and they reward me with social benefits. So that's what's going on. And the result is that even though democracy so far function better than other forms of government, they're nevertheless, that's kind of a low bar. You know, being better than dictatorship or aristocracy or, you know, genuine absolute monarchy, that's a pretty low bar because they perform very badly throughout history. So it's like, saying you're better than that is is compatible with you sucking. And and so I want to know, is there a way to make it even better? And the thing that I I think we should experiment with is not creating a small technocratic band of experts who get to decide whatever they want. They have perverse incentives and they often don't know what they're doing either, but having kind of a weighted voting system as follows. Um, So on election day, everyone gets to vote. Children, your toddler, your dog, doesn't matter. Let everyone vote. But when they vote, they do three things. They first tell us who they are. So we get information about their demographics because that affects voting behavior. They tell us what they want. So whatever it is we're voting on, whether it's a referendum or who's going to be president or whatever it is we're voting on, they tell us their position on it. And then the third thing they do is take a test of very basic political knowledge. You know, who is the president? Who's your candidate? And who's your representative in Congress? Which party controls Congress? What's the unemployment rate? Or what's the price of milk? That's, that's important too. Um, and when you have, and then the test doesn't determine whether your vote counts or not. Instead, what happens is when you have these three sets of data, what people, who people are, what they want and what they know, you can statistically estimate what the public would have voted for if it had gotten a perfect score on the test. So what would a demographically identical public have supported had it gotten a perfect score? 
Now, a priori, it could turn out that you get divergent results and there's no answer to that. But in fact, this method has been used in political science and economics for decades. Um, and you do tend to find certain trends and like what the public would want. Also, by the way, you can statistically estimate what the public would want if it was completely uninformed. And you tend to find that the actual public and the hypothetical, perfectly ignorant public are more or less equivalent in terms of their preferences. So I think that's what we should try. And then you might ask, well, who gets to decide what's on the test? I mean, really, it should be me. But since no one will like that as an answer, (laughs) um, my idea is like randomly select 500 Americans and pay them to come up with the test. You say to them, you 500 Americans have to tell us what counts as an informed voter. Come up with the test. You might think that's kind of a a paradox because I'm like, Americans are badly informed. You know, British people are badly informed. How would they they know it's on the test? But the weird thing is when you ask people what they should know to vote well, they have really smart answers. They just don't know the answers to those questions. They, they know what questions they should know the answers to. They just don't know the answers to those questions. It's kind of like you know, a student who's like, oh, I'm taking organic chemistry, so I know I need to know what a ketone is, but I don't. Right? So Americans are like, yeah, I, I think I should know the unemployment rate. I should know gas prices. I should know who my representative in Congress is. I should know some of the major bills that have passed. And they're like, okay, do you know any of that stuff? No. no. <laughs> but, I know I should, but I know that's what it would take to be an informed voter. So that's, that's the idea, and I think... You know, we've been using this as a research method in political science for a while. I think we could use it as a decision-making method to try to so t- nudge democracy about, in a better. How does that use in political science? So basically, surveys like voting, uh, uh, like exit poll surveys, you get information about the demographic, who they vote for, and some questions. You ask them some questions. Yeah, like for example, um, not every year because it varies year to year, but there's a thing called the American National Election Studies, uh, and they survey every couple of years like a bunch of voters on these questions, and they almost always ask them a bunch of information about who they are a bunch of questions about their political preferences, and they usually give them some sort of multiple choice test about information. And a number of political scientists have used that to examine, well, what would, a, like how does, for example, the question like, how does being white relate to having a preference in say free trade? In order to know that you take this kind of data and you have to control for all the other variables and see if there's a correlation. So for instance, it turns out that being rich does not predict uh, by itself as an independent variable support for free trade. Like that's not true. Uh, it turns out that being uh, being like male doesn't have much of an effect in your v- position on abortion. People think it does, but when you actually exactly. dig in the data, it doesn't really. So then once people realize this is how you kind of use this, like you, you figure out how does one variable affect the others, they started like, for example, Scott Althaus in his 2003 book, Collective Preferences in Democracy, um, and a few others, um, Martin uh, Gillens has done something like this, Larry Bartels has done stuff like this, have asked, well, what would a hypothetically fully informed public want? You know, and interestingly, when they do this, even though you have different people often using different sets of data, different questions, um, but using the same kind of method on different data with different questions, you get fairly uniform results. A, a hypothetical, fully informed public tends to think more like an economist than the actual public does. Um, the, and the policy positions they tend to take don't really correspond to either the Republicans or the Democrats. They don't just push the party line. They tend to be pretty nuanced, um, which is important because uh, in reality, when we look at most voters... Um, the story that we tell like little kids, like my, my kid's taking civics right now, my younger son, and the story that they're telling him is wrong. Um, it's what they, everyone gets taught in school, but it's just mistaken and we know it's false. They tell them that people have preferences about what the way they want the world to be. They learn how the world works and they form an ideology and then they vote for the party that best matches their ideology. And because we all do this, then the winning party tends to be the one that matches like the largest segment of the population. And then that party implements their preferences. And thus, so they're teaching the medium voter theory. Exactly. And thus, as a result, uh, you know, democracy, um, implements, if not the will of the people, at least the will of a large number of people. And the reality is that's kind of backwards. In fact, 
overwhelmingly people are ideologically quite innocent. Um, maybe only uh, Nathan uh, Calmo and or Donald Kinder and Nathan Calmo in a recent book argue that maybe only about 15 out of 100 Americans has anything like a real ideology. And it's much more common for people to just parrot whatever their party is saying today. And you tend to vote for parties for non-ideological reasons. Like the same, I, I root for the Red Sox and the Patriots because I'm from Boston. And, you know, people of my demographic like, you know, the Boston Irish Catholic demographic tend to vote Democrat, not because the uh, Democrats have been particularly good for them, but for arbitrary historical reasons as a way of sort of showing that they fit in. Um, and that's weird, but that's what the data seems to say. And so it's more likely that you are pro-gun control because you're a Democrat than that you are a Democrat because you're pro-gun control. When we look at the causal arrow, we usually find it goes party affiliation comes first, and that in turn predicts your policy preferences, not you vote for this party because you have policy preferences. All right, so last turn of, of directions here. Let's talk a little bit about something you're going to present later on today here at UT. Uh, you're going to talk about your book, Cracks in the Ivory Tower. And you already alluded a little bit to, to some problems in higher ed and, and in your description of business schools a second ago. Um, let me start with a f- sentence from the very end of the book. Uh, you say, you won't fix the universities unless you fix the incentives. Good luck with that. All right, so let's try to unpack that a little bit. So one, why do you write the, the book and, on, and what are these incentives that are you really focusing on? And I think that there's a, it's pretty agreed upon that there's problems in higher ed. I think mm-hmm. people out there are going to say, yeah, yeah, they might point in different directions. But, but what were the direction that you were pointing at here? Yeah, uh, everyone thinks there's problems in higher ed, but they're quick to point the fingers outward. So they'll say, uh, the reason higher ed has problems is because of evil donors or evil legislatures or others from outside the university corrupting it with their power and influence. Um, and academics love to point fingers and blame others and judge them, but they don't like to point the fingers at themselves. So our basic theory in the book is that if you see systematically bad behavior, the first thing you should look for are, are there perverse incentives that explain that behavior? And we find overwhelmingly, yeah, there's lots of perverse incentives inside of higher ed, as there are in any other major organization. So what the book really is, is a business ethics critique of higher ed. How, from a business ethics standpoint, how does higher ed measure up? And we say, pretty badly, it makes Enron look pretty good. <laughs> Uh, and we're not being exaggerating there. You know, Enron did some bad things, but uh, you know, most of the people at Enron were not doing bad things, whereas most of the people in academia are contributing to bad things. Um, so we tried to unpack what the various kinds of incentives are, and, and some of these things are really familiar. Like for instance, um, you know, you and I both work at a research university and a research one university, and our overwhelming incentive is to focus on research rather than teaching, because that's where the money, the status, and the prestige is. Uh, if you're an academic, you and if you're an academic and you are a superstar teacher and you don't publish, you can expect to like maybe never get a job or to make maybe a fifth about as much money as a person who's a superstar researcher who who sucks at teaching, right? So. That maybe isn't a problem because, you know, hey, frankly, it's our job to be researchers more than teachers, and that's just the deal. But but it's worth noting that. But some of the stuff is really quite bad. Uh, so one of the things we talk about in the, in the book at length are gen ed classes, and we examine the empirics on, like, for, I mean, I'm, look... I think that if you graduate from college, you should be well-rounded. You should know all that stuff that gen ed classes are supposed to teach you. I, I really do kind of look down on people who don't know that, who only know one thing. Um, so I'm not, like, I do think even if you're an econ major, you should know something about art. And if you're an art major, you should know something about physics. And if you're a physics major, you should know something about, um, you know, I don't know, 
social which, sciences. Yeah, right? something, right? Yeah, so you should know all that stuff. But the reality is, as an empirical matter, these classes don't succeed. Uh, most people don't learn much. They don't develop the soft skills they're supposedly supposed to develop from these things. Studies find that over and over again. Uh, further, they don't engage in what's called transfer of learning. Transfer of learning means um, if I learn a skill in one field, that I take that skill and transfer it to a different field where it's applicable. In fact, people sponta- don't spontaneously do that. Um, there's all these studies. Pr- that's actually very well established. There's been hundreds of studies over this over 100 years proving that it's not true. So basically, the fundamental prem- psychological premise of liberal arts education is if we teach you how to analyze a Shakespearean sonnet, then you will use that same skill to write a better business memo. And the answer is you could, but you almost certainly won't. The way people become good at doing something for 99 out of 100 people is by practicing doing that same thing over and over. So that's already disturbing on its own, and it's disturbing that universities don't seem to care about this or actually bother look into whether or not these things work. Uh, but even more disturbing is we, we try to ask, well, what predicts which classes you're going to take? And as far as we can tell, the best, the, one of the biggest predictors that you'll be forced to take a class in a particular department is how financially needy that department is. Uh, and the reason for that is that at most universities, every time you have a student in the class, your department gets money. For every butt in a seat, you get some money. That means you have more money for research, for tenure lines, for faculty, for salaries. And so um, very precarious departments, financially precarious departments like English and modern languages uh, or comparative literature programs, they have a really low student-to-faculty ratio. Hardly anyone majors in them. They have very few outside sources of money. There's very few jobs for people with PhDs in that outside of the university itself. You frequently find that students are required to take multiple classes directly in those departments. In departments like economics, which has lots of outside money and great job prospects, and if you have a PhD in econ, you will definitely get a job somewhere doing something good. Um, you find it's rare for people to be forced to take a class specifically in that. So the, the predictor looks like what's going on is what we call rent-seeking. Uh, the financially needy departments make sure to get their faculty on the Senate, to get their faculty in the committees, and they push hard to enforce, require students to take their classes so that they get the money that they need. So really it's, it's a form of exploitation. And it's exploitation because it's taking students' time and their money, it's costing them taking a class they might care more about, and the argument that it makes them better off, well, yeah, we force them to take an English class, but it makes them better writers. Well, it doesn't, actually. I wish it did, but it doesn't. For 9 out of 10 of them, it has no real effect. So, so you're just ripping off the students. And so at Georgetown, uh, for instance, all of, for the um, business students, all of the genetic classes that they're supposed to take, including the business core and the regular university core, the cost of that in terms of tuition, if you're paying full sticker price, is like $89,000. So $89,000 worth of classes that supposedly are going to deliver all these goods to them, but don't. That's terrible. So I, I didn't think this when I, I used to work at Brown University, and I didn't think this at the time because I didn't know about these, stat, these studies or this data, and I hadn't worked on this myself. But Brown has no gen ed curriculum. You can just do whatever you want. You have to major in something, but there's not like a gen ed requirement. Um, I now think that that's the way to run it. You, know, you, you allow more choice. You allow more market-driven approach, right? The students will figure out and whatever. It's best for them individually. And, and how, but how do those departments survive at Brown? You think that there'll be no comparative literature as a result of this? Well, you know, Brown works because they have so much money that even if... Uh, sustains it, right? Yeah, yeah. Even if no one takes classes in a certain department, they can still sustain things. And they kind of recognize that some departments are prestigious despite that. And yeah... I, I, and I do have this understanding, like people are like, if you know, if you don't have a philosophy department at a university, is it a real university? And part of me wants to go, no, not really. But at the same time, 
I don't want to force people to take philosophy classes just to give jobs to philosophers. And if it turns out that forcing them to take philosophy classes doesn't deliver the goods it's supposed to, it's not worth it. Now, to be clear, I would love for every all those skills. Like when you think about what's supposed to happen in these classes and what people are supposed to learn, I really do want all these students to know all that stuff. Like, but it doesn't actually work. And because it doesn't work, we should stop doing it. Or it doesn't it. work in the way we currently do it, right? Which might yeah. be a problem of, of, of whatever. Our educational strategies are not yeah. you know, up to par or, or up to what we're supposed to be doing. Because Partly because we don't measure. We don't even try to measure the effect of our product. That's one of the things that you, you pointed out in the book, this notion of negligent advertisement, right? Like, well, we say all these things about what we do and what we put forward, but we don't measure it. We don't try to, you know, and... and, and and there's just this, this confusion of like, but this is a market, no? And people can choose where to go, and, and, but somehow it doesn't work like a market. If, I'm, if people are saying, okay, here's a product, if I buy the product and the product doesn't do what it's supposed to, 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 to advertise it does, I won't buy it again, that company's going to go out of business. Nobody's going to buy the product. So why is it that universities stay afloat and they keep doing what they do if they're not delivering on that product? What is the flaw in the market here? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it... Uh, in a way, and this is not original to me, but I think the main theory about why universities stay afloat is because they're providing something other than learning, right? So there's this thing called the signaling model of higher ed. It's a question of why is it when you graduate from college, you make more money and you have a better chance of getting a job than not? The fact that you go to college and persist through it for four years, that you went through a difficult screening process, think about how hard it is to get into a good university, right? Um, so you have this strong, difficult screening process, and for four years you jumped through hoops and did all this stuff, which is difficult to do, even if you don't learn anything from it. What that proves to potential employers is that you are a smart, perseverant conformist. You are smart, you're willing to work hard and do, delay, delay gratification over the long term, and um, you go along with what society expects from you. And people want to hire people like that. So it's ultimately reducing the search costs and information costs for future employers because the fact that you graduated from, say, Harvard is very strong evidence that you have what it takes to be a good employee. And I remember when I was at Brown, uh, we have an engineering school there. People often don't know that. They're not known for that. And one of the most common things for, uh, say, chemical engineers to be hired to do is to go work in finance in Wall Street. They don't know anything about finance, but Doesn't Goldman matter. Sachs would come in and say, oh, we can teach you finance in six weeks, but we know you're good at math. We know you're smart. We know that you can do something hard. We know you can take orders. So you've got what it takes. We're going to hire you. Um, so a lot of education, a lot of the premium of education comes from proof that you have what it takes, and colleges help with that. Unfortunately, though, they do it through redistribution because effectively what they do is it's not colleges make it so some people make more money and then the people who don't go to college aren't really affected by it. It it seems to be redistributive where the people who go to college get more money, but as a result, the people who don't go to college get less money. And that's one of the reasons why I tend to think, again, universities are a very right-wing institution as as in using the term the way that the left would like to use that term because they're- inequality. Creating inequality rather than reducing it. Um, so are there solutions? Are there things that... Let me actually, before we talk about solutions, let's talk about one thing that's a pet peeve of mine. Uh, you have a whole chapter on it. And student evaluations. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So what, what, what is the mechanism? What is it doing? Why is it that that's so perversely designed. Yeah, right. So first of all, I really hope my university continues to use student evaluations because I selfishly... <laughs> you do well at it? <laughs> I do really well. I selfishly benefit from them. I got a bunch of fives last semester. Um, I always get higher than average. And given how we do merit raises, um, because I get higher evaluations than most of my other colleagues, I get more of a merit raise than they do. So selfishly speaking, I benefit from them. And I think it's important for me to say that, not to be a jerk, but because um, sometimes people who complain about them are hurt by them and you think it's sour grapes. I'm not one of those people. I am richer than I otherwise would be because of these things. That said, uh, 
the deal, the problem with student evaluations is simply that they don't track learning. Um, lots of experiments have been done trying to test this over the past 40 years where you do something where you randomly assign students to a class with like say the same the same type of uh, content delivered more or less the same way with slightly different professors and then you evaluate how much they actually learn and compare that to the students evaluations so often this is done in military academies because you need to be able to run an experiment and you can force people to take a class like you know you've signed your soul over to the army so they can tell you which classes to take um and it turns out that having a positive evaluation is the debate ranges between is it just not correlated at all with learning or is it slightly negatively correlated with learning. So the fact that you get the fact that I get slightly higher than average or not slightly I get significantly higher average uh, evaluations might mean that I'm actually not a very good teacher. Um, that's really where the debate is. It seems of anything to be more of a personality test. And the reason this persists is like look when when fact when the universities first started doing this they were well motivated they wanted to make sure that people were good teachers they recognized that faculty are often not hired on the basis they're teaching but they're hired from like where they got their phd and how much they've published even at schools that are highly teaching oriented so not not ut austin not georgetown but like you know riviera college in nashua new hampshire where they don't do research and they just teach even at those schools they're often hiring people on the basis of their like research profile and where they got their phd and not because of their demonstrated teaching skill they realize it's important that we have people be good teachers shouldn't we try to measure that isn't one idea just ask the students how how much they feel like they've learned and whether they thought the faculty member was effective the problem was now we know through decades and decades of studies that that method doesn't track the truth but once you create organizations that a bureaucracy on campus that funds this that pays for this it has people's salaries and so on uh that bureaucracy will fight tooth and nail to maintain itself because that's where their jobs are and further um, deans and others have a perverse incentive too because actually measuring teaching effectiveness is incredibly difficult. We talk about in the book, what would it take to actually measure it? It's incredibly expensive and it probably interferes a great deal with student choice. But if you simply have these student evaluations and you use them, to most people who aren't paying attention, it looks like you're investing in learning. It looks like you're tracking it. They don't know any better. So you can kind of create the appearance that you care about this stuff and that you're measuring it and without actually having to do it. And it's cheaper and easier than like the actual alternative of, of genuinely measuring performance. Again, going back to the false advertisement <laughs> yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we, uh, I, years ago, I was tasked by the president at the time here to do a study on this at UT. And I couldn't do a, uh, as good of a, of a replication of the, the Air Force Academy and the Bocconi study because we didn't have the ability to do it in a, a randomized fashion. But I was given a lot of data on student demographic and... Uh, there's a lot of classes that everybody has to take here, and a lot of those have is a two-part thing. So you can get in, let's say, take calculus one, and the assignment on who you take calculus one with is quasi-random. And then I can follow up and see how you do in calculus two as a result of who you take calculus one with. And you think that, well, if the student evaluations were telling me about the better teachers in calculus one, that should be I, find, I should find some signal how well they do in calculus two, not you know in the current class but the next class, right? And the answer is. No correlation whatsoever. And again, I have data on the students. Again, adjust for the quality of the students coming in in the different sections, calculus one, and so on and so forth. There's lots of adjustments you have to make. Of course, this is not public or got published because nobody wants that answer. <laughs> uh, but it was was obvious. It was obvious there. This doesn't measure learning. Yeah. And at the same time, one thing you don't point out, you didn't talk about it here today, is that it measures things that we don't want to measure. Right. 
I'm a, you know, I'm an immigrant. I have an accent. I get punished by that. Right. It doesn't matter. My, and maybe that's actually justified because maybe I don't convey information as well. Or maybe not. Or maybe just because I don't sound like a professor. Or if you're a woman, you get punished by that. Yeah. And again, it might be, but it's hard to tell a story that, that, that there's a half point. Yeah. There's a half point on average effect of, of being a woman. Yeah. And, Some of these and effects nobody are... adjusts for that in, 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 in that salary time. So it's like we are all about equality and inclusion and so on. And yeah, you've been in faculty discussions about how to give merit raises to people and using those numbers, and nobody wants to make that adjustment. Absolutely. And, and the result, I mean, you're talking about the, you know, the things like being dinged for having an accent. That's true. You're really good looking. You probably get a bonus for that. Uh, it probably helps you. But uh, even on that point, um, I remember reading a paper that said that female undergraduates dock female professors Higher. for being yes. for more for their yes. looks than male undergraduates do. Yeah. That's, so if you're like from here, the result comes from here. That's, oh, that's the, right. The, yeah. the Hummer mesh study yeah. that was done here. I, I, I used that in my class at and, and the students, uh, um, it was a larger proportion of females rating the, the, the looks of the faculty in that study and see what's the effect of it. First of all is that the effect of the perceived looks of the instructor is as big as the gender effect. Yeah. Uh, but there's a compounding gender effect there, which is like a really, you know, it's a twofer. Yes, there's higher expectations for looks for women in front of the classroom than there is for males, which is, you know. Yeah. Again, it doesn't surprise you when you say it out loud, culturally, right? Yeah. Uh, and yet it's something that is obviously inside of the measure, and we don't do anything about it. Right. Absolutely. It should be like, stop using this right now, or you collect and throw it in the garbage. But don't use that in any meaningful way. Absolutely. And it's completely immoral to use it. It would right. be like, I mean, imagine if a plumbing company did this and they're like, hey, you're really great at plumbing, but our customers don't like you as much because uh, they don't think you're as good looking as this other plumber. Right. And even then, you almost have a better argument for it because you're like, well, they might not repeat buying from us because it, it turns out they really, whether they hire us or not, depends on the quality of our, of our, uh, how, how good looking our plumbers are. You, you have a better argument than you would in higher ed where it's supposed to be about learning, right? Um, and they don't learn better from better looking faculty. They don't learn better from smoother talking faculty. We know that, but that's what gets rewarded. And this isn't a place which is committed to diversity and equity and inclusion, but the fundamental way that it teaches or evaluates teaching is negatively correlated with those things. How dare we? But it's because we don't mean it. You know, it, it's just all the banner. We don't mean what's on the banners. Like, yeah. When push comes to shove, you know what people mean by what they do. And if they don't do it, they don't mean it. So solutions, talk about solutions. Any, any ideas of reforms that you think could, again, you emphasize incentives and how the incentives are the real reasons for, for these problems, but uh, any, yeah. any thoughts on, on what to do? Yeah, I mean, part of what needs to happen is just less public funding of higher education. Um, it looks like it's a lot of redistribution um, towards the upper middle class at the expense of others. It's probably not, for the most part, it's probably not increasing salaries overall. It's probably just redistributing salaries, which means it's not worth the public investment. There are some special exceptions to that, and but in general, not um, some of it requires, I think, successful lawsuits. You know, like if if only uh, universities could be sued for false advertising or negligent advertising. Some of it might require regulation. I mean, I had this whole analogy to imagine that the drug company Pfizer offered a drug called Calegra, and they promised that if you took this drug, which costs two hundred fifty thousand dollars and requires you to take say forty hours, it takes forty hours a week, forty weeks a year over four years for you to take this drug, but it will deliver all these cognitive and emotional benefits if you take it. And they did no testing at all, 
and it turns out that actually others did test it and didn't work. If they tried to offer that on the market, uh, the the FDA would come after them and fine them heavily. But universities are in exactly the same position, making exactly the same promises. It's just not a drug. It's education, and no one does anything. So if you can imagine the Department of Education regulating universities with, say, half the strictness that drug companies or car companies or, like, you know, Nestle Water is regulated with, um, they wouldn't be able to make these promises anymore, and they'd have to, like, they'd have to reform that might help. Um, some of it just requires like a president to come in and just change things. Like, you know, look, we're not going to, we're going to do what Brown does. We're not going to have gen ed requirements anymore. Like the, the data says they don't work. We're not doing them. Uh, we're no longer going to have student testing or student evaluations. They, they're unfair. Um, they're racist. They're sexist. They're, they're lookist. They're unfair. They don't track teaching. So just get rid of them. So I think some of these things, I think a well-motivated president or provost could simply unilaterally get rid of, um, but they typically just aren't motivated to do it because they, they care about what looks good rather than what is good. Right. The incentives that they face is exactly, exactly that, right? Yeah. Do you, any thoughts on, on whether we should separate the mission of teaching and research? Because that's one of the, one of the problems of, of putting them in the same equation of how to evaluate people and creating the right incentives, right? Uh, um, yeah. um, should we have the, you know, the physicists dry, the, the developing rockets teaching physics 101? Does that make any sense? And, and yeah, it's not clear that it does. I, I mean, I do personally find that I benefit like personally from teaching undergrads. I feel like, I mean, even this, you know, why it's okay to want to be a rich book. A lot of that is like lecture notes from classes sort of turned into a book. Uh, because I think there's something to be said before forcing yourself to take a really complicated idea and explain it in like 10th grade English. Like that helps. But at the end of the, like, uh, say take the Australian National University, um, they have kind of a two-part faculty system where they have the research faculty whose job is just to do research and to train graduate students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they have the teaching faculty who teach the undergrads. Um, they pay them both well, and they just recognize we're going to have a division of labor. Why not just do that? And, and we, in most universities, you kind of have that. Like you have it here. We have that at Georgetown. Uh, you know, you and I have a low teaching load. We're fundamentally rewarded for research over teaching, though teaching doesn't matter. Um, when the more we publish, the less we teach. And then we have non-tenure track faculty, like professors of the practice, uh, adjunct professors, uh, so-called teaching professors, lecturers, etc., who are hired for teaching and not for research. And they specialize in that, and they have much higher teaching loads. So why not just make that more extreme? You know, have me teach zero classes a year, and have these other faculty teach even more, and just have me focus on research it's not any obvious answer why not uh, other than perhaps students somewhat want to be around the researchers like what's the point of going to harvard and saying like we have world-class faculty and world-class researchers if you never actually see them maybe that's part of the equation yeah no, it's, it's definitely hard and, and the demand seems to be growing fast fast and fast right and we don't we don't seem to add uh, elite seats at least at the same at the same rate and that's why prices keep going up of course uh, so it, it's a uh, and the call for reforms, I mean, the only call for reforms that we see these days is what? Is uh, free college. Yeah, free college. And that's going to do exactly the reverse of what we're, we're talking about here in terms of potential solutions, right? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, the other day I, I saw on Facebook, I got an ad from Bernie Sanders saying, like, if we had free college in the United States, what do you think, how would that affect your life? And I wrote back and I said, oh, it would mean that I would only have rich students, which sounds weird, yeah. but it's true. Uh, because if all if state universities were all completely free, then... The only people that are going to come to Georgetown are the super, super rich people. And like 
you know, our upper middle class students and all like upper, you know, our middle class students and others are just going to take the, the state universities instead. And given how much we're redistributing status, that means we're just going to be allocating status entirely to like people who are already oh, quite the, rich. The chase for status is going to be even higher now. It's going to be like this, this credentialism up to the extreme. Absolutely. Yeah. You're going to have to get a PhD to get a job. To at, get a job. Yeah. <laughs> As right. a barista. Yeah. Well, it was already <laughs> happening in Germany where, P, where the average PhD student is just looking to move up in business and they're not, they don't care about research at all. Right. Yeah. All right, Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Looking forward to your talk this afternoon. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 